This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning. Good morning. Please uh, find your seat and open up in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. We'll continue on our series, The Acts of the Risen Lord. Acts chapter 15. Such a joy to be together this morning, hear testimonies, witness baptisms, just full of faith for what the Lord's doing in our midst. Open up to Acts 15. Uh, If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We're going to be going back and forth to read portions of Scripture, so uh, you'll need a Bible to follow along. If you raise your hand, an usher will give you a Bible as a gift from us. Please raise your hand and keep it up. We'll get you some Bibles. In his book, Turning Points, historian Mark Knoll argues that the history of the church moves forward through a series of turning points. Hence the name, turning points. Events, moments, individuals through whom the church is never the same. Through whom things are never the same afterward. He he argues that we shouldn't think about church history or even world history as kind of a steady progression on, but rather there are these turning points, crucial events through which things are never the same. Our passage this morning in Acts 15 is a turning point. It's a turning point in the book of Acts because after this, the narrative is going to shift to focus on the Apostle Paul. It's going to follow Paul and his team the rest of the way. It's also a turning point in church and world history. After this text, what's going to happen is the gospel is going to move west into Europe. And through that invasion of Europe with the gospel, the gospel is going to spread to the rest of the world. One man said it like this, that the invasion of the gospel into Europe was not in the mind of Paul, but it was in the mind of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to happen. The risen Lord is going to take his gospel to Europe. And this story, it's filled with twists and turns. It's filled with setbacks. It's filled with disappointments and head-scratching moments. But I think there's a crucial truth for us in this story. And the, the truth is, here's the main point, that the risen Lord guides his mission. The risen Lord guides his mission. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen, he is reigning, and he's on a mission to seek and save the lost. He's on a mission to start new churches that love him and honor him. And this passage illustrates that he guides the mission every step of the way. And this passage is also going to encourage us because we know something of twists and turns. We know something of setbacks and failures. I mean, there's many in this room, I'm sure, right now just thinking about setbacks in your own life. And this passage illustrates that the Lord, he's not only the Lord of the mission, he's the Lord of our lives. And he guides every step of the way. Every twist, every turn we face that we do not expect doesn't come to the Lord as a surprise. He is the guide. 
So our text this morning is Acts 15, 36 through 16, 15. And there's four scenes, and we're going to take each one at a time. So I'll read the first scene, we'll comment on it, and then we'll move on from there. So scene one, this is Acts 15, 36 through 41, a sharp disagreement. So read with me in Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had, drawn, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. The division between Paul and Barnabas was unexpected and I'm sure perplexing. Up to this point, everything had been going right for Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, if you remember, they were set apart as missionaries in the church at Antioch. They were sent out to preach the gospel and plant new churches. They saw conversions. They saw miracles. They saw prophecy being fulfilled as the Gentiles were brought in to the church. Their ministry was vindicated in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council declared that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that the Gentiles could be welcomed in. And after that, they went back to Antioch rejoicing, thinking this is amazing. The grace of God is at work. And I'm sure they look forward to a future in ministry together. Wouldn't you? But it wasn't to be. Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement. And this wasn't a, I don't know if you ever have disagreements with somebody where you say, I, I could be wrong about this, I'm not totally sure, but here's kind of what I think about this. You know, there's a, there's a humility in, in that. This wasn't like one of those disagreements. This, this word, it, it connotes something of, a, of an explosive argument, almost a violent argument. It's the same word used in Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens, and he says his spirit was provoked within him when he sees all of the idols around him. This is a serious disagreement. So the question is, why? What, what is the big deal with taking John Mark? That's what the disagreement is about. Should we take Mark with us on our next missionary journey? And if you think about it, Mark, this is the guy who would go on to write the gospel according to Mark. So this is a gifted guy. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, in Acts 13, he left Paul and Barnabas in the middle of their missionary journey. Not totally sure why he did, but what's clear is, after the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, he wanted a second chance. Think about Mark. Mark failed on the first journey. This time, he wants a second chance. Paul says no. Barnabas says yes. So, who, who do you have? Like, who, who do you think's right in this disagreement? Paul says no, can't give him a second chance. Barnabas says yes, let's bring him along. 
Paul believed the success of the mission was so critical that we can't take any chances. So what if we bring Mark along and he, he does the same thing again and it brings harm to the mission? Sometimes you have to make a hard decision for the greater good that's hard for individuals to hear. Barnabas, and remember Barnabas, Barnabas' name is son of encouragement. Wouldn't you like that to be your name, Barnabas, son of encouragement? I mean, you're just with him and you feel lifted up, encouraged. He believed, well, God's the God of second chances, right? God gave Paul a second chance when he was persecuting the church and delivered him, so why can't we give Mark a second chance? That's what Barnabas thinks. Sometimes you have to extend radical grace to people and believe that God, believe the best in them, believe that God is at work in them. So who, who was right? Luke, Luke doesn't tell us who's right in this argument because I don't think there is a right answer. These were godly men. I mean, the, the greatest leaders in the early church had a disagreement. They disagreed, they couldn't come to a resolution, and so they separated, went on their own ways. I mean, can you believe that? Could you believe being in the Antioch church in that moment with Paul and Barnabas, your, your pastors, the ones who were the godliest men, had a disagreement and went different ways? So what can we learn from this painful division? Well, to use John Stott's phrase, one thing we learn is that it wasn't all romance and righteousness in the early church. It wasn't all romance and righteousness. Sometimes we have this picture of the early church, if we could just get back to the early church, if that's where all the purity is, we've, we've gone astray from that. Sometimes it can feel like these early disciples are superheroes in the faith and we could just never measure up to their example. Nope. They were weak, sometimes it was hard for them to get along, and they had separations, just like you and me. And this should encourage us, because I think what this tells us is that our failures and foibles, they don't stop the risen Lord from accomplishing His mission. He doesn't need our romance and righteousness to complete his work. He is the one guiding his mission from place to place. But I think we also do learn something about resolving conflict in our lives. Maybe even as we read that, you were thinking of a strained relationship you have with a coworker, a child in-laws, or even a friend. Sometimes it's the most painful with a friend. What this passage is not encouraging us to do is simply throw up our hands and say, well, sometimes you just can't get along. You know, Paul and Barnabas didn't get along, so I guess I'm, I don't need to try to get along either. Romans 12 helps us. Romans 12:18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That, that is sound guidance from God's word when it comes to conflict. If possible, so it's assuming sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes you do everything you can to resolve conflict and it just doesn't work. But so far as it's possible, live peaceably with all. We should seek to resolve conflicts that we have with one another, but sometimes it's impossible on this side of heaven. 
But this text does encourage us that God can bring good out of relational conflict. God works even in difficulties. Even in the text itself, because of their division, now there's two missionary teams. Did you notice that? That Barnabas took Mark with him, Paul took Silas with him. Now they're going to different places ministering the gospel. We, we might say, we might even say that what Satan meant for division, God used for multiplication. So Satan wants to divide, he wants to destroy, but even if he's at work doing that in the church, God has another plan. God is guiding his mission beyond that. So that, I think that should give us hope and faith, even if you're here and you're experiencing conflict with somebody, you just think, what is the, what is the Lord doing here? T take heart, the Lord is guiding your life. He's guiding the mission. But did Paul and Barnabas ever reconcile? That's a good question. What about, what about Mark? Did they ever get back together? It appears so. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul commends Barnabas as a fellow preacher of the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 4, 11, some of, some of Paul's last words recorded uh, before his death, he says this, get Mark and bring him to me for he is very useful to my ministry. Could you imagine being Mark, hearing those words? Paul, who said, no, let's not take Mark with us. At the end of his life, said, get Mark for me. It's useful for my ministry. So if you're in the middle of a conflict and it feels hopeless, let this story encourage you. In Christ, there is hope for reconciliation. In Christ, there is hope to come back together. And in Christ, there is hope that God will work even what seems most painful for his good purposes. It's not all romance and righteousness in the early church. There's, there's division. There's hardship. But the good news is that the Lord doesn't need our romance and righteousness. He doesn't need it in our church. He can work in the midst of any difficulty. So scene one ends with Paul and Barnabas separating, and the rest of Acts follows the ministry of Paul and his new team. And this next scene tells us about the final preparations before the turning point, before when the gospel goes to Europe. So let's look at our next scene, scene two, a promising disciple. This is Acts 16, one through five. So read with me. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. <clears throat> This scene is, it's another important piece of the narrative. And doesn't it illustrate that main point that God guides his mission? So the division between Paul and Barnabas led Paul eventually to Timothy. Timothy, who would be his, 
his closest confidant, who he would call his true son in the faith, the one that he would rely on more than anyone else. So the split between Paul and Barnabas, it was, it was painful, but it was providential. It led to good. Timothy, he was probably converted during Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra. He grew in his faith and was well spoken of. What I love is that Timothy's story, it it didn't begin with Paul. Timothy's story began with his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 1, 5 says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. The Lord would use Timothy in mighty ways for the mission of God. He would use him to defend sound doctrine. He would use him to assist the apostle Paul. But first, the Lord used a faithful mother and grandmother to to transfer the faith to Timothy. He, He was guiding his mission. Think about this. He was guiding his mission in Eunice's living room. When, when Timothy was a little boy sitting with his mother, maybe sitting with his grandmother, reading the scriptures, learning about the Lord, learning about what it means to fear the Lord. There's an application here. Mothers and, and grandmothers, you play a vital role in the mission of God. You... It's not the only contribution you make is mothering and grandmothering, but it is a vital one, and it is often overlooked. So remember this. The hidden and hard work of mothering is vital to God's mission. It's vital what you do. And I I believe, I know there are Eunice's and Lois's in this church doing this good work. Mothers, grandmothers, caring for children, nurturing them, giving their lives for them, taking long days of diapers and discipline and teaching and giving your life for that. I want to encourage you that there's also Timothys in this church. That there's this young boys, girls, who are going to grow up to be men and women of faith. Oh, so affected during that baptism. Just seeing teens, preteens of families in this church that devoted your lives to transferring the gospel to these kids. It's encouraging. And I want you to know that it's vital to the mission. It's not that you can't be a part of the mission because you're too busy with children at home. It's because God has called you to this, and it's vital. In verse 3, there's a perplexing turn in the story. Moving on, Paul has Timothy circumcised. Now, this is really perplexing because Paul has consistently opposed the idea that you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. In fact, that's what the last chapter of Acts was all about to some degree. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be Christians. So why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? It says, because of the Jews in those places. 
So there were Jewish Christians where they were going to minister the word, and they would have been offended or distracted by a Jew who wasn't circumcised. Does that make sense? So, so Timothy, he was a Jew who wasn't circumcised because his father was a Greek, and it would have been confusing and maybe distracting for those, for those brothers and sisters if he was coming ministering to them. It, it wasn't, the point is, it wasn't a gospel issue. He wasn't saying, Timothy, you need to be circumcised so that you can be saved. He's saying, you need to be circumcised so that there's no distractions for the gospel. Clear out any barrier there may be to preaching the gospel. I just want to say kudos to Timothy here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I just want to say, if, if, uh, if I was in his shoes, I might be asking some questions of Paul, like, are you... Are you sure this is really necessary? Or are any other teams taking applications for, for gospel ministry? But the result, the result was fruitful ministry. Verses four and five. Timothy, they went about teaching the churches, and the churches were strengthened. The churches became strong. What a picture and what a story so far of the Lord guiding his mission in ways that the early disciples wouldn't have expected, but in ways that led to the strength of the churches. Are you seeing the main point? Paul and Barnabas, their division, it wasn't a setback. It was a part of the Lord's sovereign plan in the mission going forward. The Lord guides his mission, and the Lord, he guides our lives as well. Amen. So are you, are you facing a, a curveball in your life right now? Just something happening, suffering, health issues, something going on. You're just like, I did not see this coming. This almost came out of nowhere. I don't know what it's about. Let me encourage you that... There's no curveballs to the Lord. No, nothing takes him off, uh, off focus. In fact, he, he's the pitcher. He, he's the one laying out our lives. Psalms say that he has written in his book all of our days, our lives, before there was one of them. And he, through every twist and turn we face, we can be confident in his good purpose, his good guidance through it. So let's see where the Lord guides them next. What's going to happen next? Scene three, the open door. This is Acts 16, 6 through 10. Here's the turning point. Here's the hinge of history through which once we walk through this text, when this happened, the world was never the same. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us 
And notice the us. Luke, the author, is joining the story at this point. He's, he's added to Paul's team. And so now throughout Acts, you'll see we, we went here, us. God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is the turning point. This is when the gospel is going to head west and invade Europe. But it starts again with what seems like a setback. So Paul's team wants to go into Asia and preach the gospel, preach the word there, but they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit. They attempt to go to Bithynia, but then the Spirit of Jesus does not allow them. And the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus, talking about, both of those are talking about the Holy Spirit. I think it's emphasizing the Spirit of the risen Christ is at work, guiding them. Now, what did it look like for the Holy Spirit to forbid them to go into Asia? I, I don't know, and I, I don't think we can really know. But I imagine it was perplexing and discouraging for Paul. I mean, think, think about it. They're having this, this division happens, and um, not really sure about that, then led to Timothy. That's exciting. But now here, another closed door. But Paul receives a vision from a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And I think what we see in this passage is that the Lord often closes doors so that he can open other doors. Isn't that true in our own experience? The Lord will close some door that we're pursuing, that we're going after, but he does it for a purpose, to open other doors. So now the team is set, the direction is set, and the invasion of Europe will begin. The Lord has guided his mission ever since the day he ascended into heaven, and he's continuing to do so. Through every twist and turn, his good purpose is coming to bear. So what can we learn from this scene? Well, I don't think we're meant to learn how to receive personal guidance for decision-making in our lives. Some people have read this text and thought that, okay, well, the Lord needs to come to me in a vision or a dream and tell me what to do. I remember, it's kind of embarrassing, but I remember in high school, uh, I used to want to know God's, God's will for my life in different ways, like how to go to college or which college to go to, uh, different decisions in my life. And the way I did it is I would go outside into the driveway with a basketball and I, I would go, we'd have a basketball goal up in the driveway and I would take, I would, this is kind of embarrassing, but I would take shots and I would say to the Lord, okay, Lord. If this shot goes in, I know that means you want me to go here to college. If this shot doesn't go in, I know it means you want me to do this. And I would kind of bargain with the Lord about that. And usually I would just shoot until the decision I wanted kind of uh, came to pass. I don't know if you've ever done that with the Lord. Now, I doubt any of you have ever done that before. Maybe you have, and I'm not alone. Come talk to me afterward. Um, but I think we all do either ourselves or interact with people who talk with really great confidence about the Lord told me to do that. The Lord told me I need to go and do that. The Lord, a more spiritual way of saying it is the Lord called me to do this. You know, the Lord called me to move here, to do this, to do that. Now, God did reveal himself in a miraculous way to Paul, but I don't think we're meant to expect him to do the same thing for us on a regular basis. In his, in his 
classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes, the basic mistake is to think of guidance as essentially inward promptings by the Holy Spirit apart from the written word. That's, that's so good. If you want to know God's will for your life, open up the Bible. Open up and see what God's authoritative word has to teach us. He leads us through his word. But this scene also has something else to teach us for our lives. And it's that God often closes doors in order to open other doors. And one of the most painful things in our lives are closed doors to good things. Facing one of those, a, a closed door to a good thing. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe, maybe it's children. You struggle with infertility and want to have children. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a setback. Closed door. I think the Lord wants to encourage you that every closed door, it's, it's closed by his nail-pierced hands. What do I mean by that? It, it's closed by the hands that were pierced for your transgressions. It's closed by the hands that, that love you, that know who you are, that know that he knows his plan for you. He, he doesn't close doors out of spite, just out of being angry. He doesn't close doors out of neglect. He doesn't just forget about you. Oh, if you feel forgotten by the Lord, be assured the Lord forgets nothing. He forgets none of the ones he loves. He closes doors out of love. He closes doors out of love. And although it may not feel like it, he closes doors because he has a better plan for every one of our lives than we could have planned for ourselves. He has a better plan than we have. Now, it doesn't mean we should stop knocking on these doors. Does it mean we should stop asking? It's not saying, oh, if you keep asking for that thing, you're wrong or don't have faith. Nothing like that. Continue to knock, continue to ask. But as you do, as you do, do so with the confidence that the Lord knows the plans he has for you. The Lord knows and he's guiding your life to his appointed end and purpose. You, you can trust the Lord who guides your life because he already gave his life. He gave his life for you. He's not going to forget about you. He knows what he's doing in your life. And that was true for this team. Paul, Paul wanted to go into Asia. Doors closed. Doors closed. Why? Because the Lord had something else in store. The gospel was going to go to Europe. The gospel was going to invade a continent through which missionaries would eventually be sent to the entire world. So when Paul just saw a closed door to Asia, the Lord had an open door in mind that's coming. So let's, let's see, let's see what it looked like to go through this open door. Scene four, our last point, the open heart. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samanthrace and, fall, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So finally we see the reason for the division, the reason for the closed door. The reason was an opened heart that's coming. Finally, the gospel makes it to Europe, makes it to Philippi, Macedonia. And this, this woman, Lydia, would become the first Christian in this Philippian church that would be the letter to the Philippians. This is what the Lord is doing. He works in ways we don't expect. It was Paul's custom when he went to a new city to first go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews who were there. But in Philippi, there's no synagogue, probably because to have a synagogue, you need to have 10 Jewish men, kind of like a quorum that says, okay, you can have a synagogue here. But there was no synagogue, which probably meant there weren't 10 Jewish men in the whole city of Philippi. It would appear at first glance this is another closed door. But in cities like this, there were often small groups of Jews that would meet by the riverside to pray, kind of like a more informal service where they would pray and encourage one another. So Paul goes out, his team goes out to the riverside, and they run into a women's prayer meeting where these people are meeting together, and there's a woman there named Lydia, Lydia is a rich businesswoman, seller of purple goods. It was, a, it was a color of royalty. She was a rich woman, a part of this group, and she would become a key participant in the Philippian church. So their team came up to this small group meeting, and Paul sat down, which is, means he was taking the place of the teacher. During those days, it's kind of interesting, during those days, the teacher or the preacher would sit down and the whole congregation would stand up. And I think it's probably good that it was, it was reversed so that now you can sit while this sermon is going on. But he sits down, takes the stance of the teacher, and begins to preach to these women about Christ. And we don't have his sermon recorded but we can be sure that, that Paul preached about Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Christ is the suffering servant. He is the son of David. He is the one in whom Israel hoped. And Paul says that this Christ has come. This Christ has come and he has died a sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners. He gave his life on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. This Christ, after he died, was buried, and three days later he was raised from the dead, declaring him to be the true Messiah of God, vindicated as God's servant. And I'm sure Paul preached that there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ, the one that Lydia had hoped for and longed for and waited for had come. And Paul was able to tell her the good news. And as he was preaching, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. 
That's how somebody becomes a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, that's how you became a Christian. The gospel came, you heard it, maybe you heard it a hundred times, maybe you heard it a thousand times, but one time, the Lord opened your heart, and you were able to see and believe and say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. And maybe you're here this morning, you feel like that's you. Maybe you've heard the gospel, you've heard this message of salvation, but maybe today you feel strangely drawn to Christ. Maybe it's that the Lord is opening your heart to believe. Let me encourage you, respond with faith. Come to Jesus and be saved. Lydia was the first convert in Europe. She was baptized, and it would actually seem to be that her home was the location of the Philippian church, so you just, just imagine this, this convert, this woman whom, whom God saved, God would use in his plan. So who would have planned this? Who, who would have foreseen it? Not Paul, not Barnabas, but the Lord knew. The Lord was guiding his mission. The Lord closed doors. The Lord opened doors. The Lord changed teams. The Lord put together teams. All throughout, the Lord is guiding his mission. And as we learn that, we learn that the one who guides his mission, he guides our lives as well. He guides your life through every twist and turn. No matter what you're facing, no matter the difficulty, trust the guide. Trust the one who is leading you. Let's end with the words of an old hymn called, He Leadeth Me. The theology of this hymn captures what we're talking about in this text, that through any difficulty, the Lord works and guides. Here's what the hymn says. He leadeth me... O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, whate'er I do, whatever I, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, by waters still, things are good, or troubled sea, still tis his hand that leadeth me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that he loves our church and he guides our church into your mission. We trust you today. Pray as we worship you, you would fill our hearts with faith that you are the one who guides us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.